Please be seated. And as you're taking your seat, please uh, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 20, to the very passage we just read, the last six verses of, of Matthew chapter 20. I'd urge you to set that, uh, set that Bible in your lap, whether it's paper or digital, make sure it's turned on. Make sure you scroll to Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. Hold it in your lap. Hold it so you can see it, and I urge you to pay attention, to open your eyes as we study it. Well, we've already had one reference to the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to give a second. This is a little bit unusual way to introduce a passage out of Matthew, but I really want to do a little bit more than just that. The Lord has blessed New Life Church, specifically here in West Lynn. We've had an influx of new people coming to our fellowship. In fact, just two weeks ago, we had 10 brand new first-time people had never come to this place who came and worshiped with us. And it seems like week in and week out, we have, we have new people all the time. And I want to remind us of what we're about to do here. Now, I serve as one of the, of the pastors here. Normally, I reside in the classroom, in the foyer, teaching, but occasionally have the opportunity to, to get to do what I'm doing this morning, which is preach the Word as well. And I've been struck many times, but especially this week in preparation for this morning, I've been struck by the reality of what Nehemiah chapter 8, the chapter previous to what Chris read. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. You can make a note of that. You may want to look at that. I think we're going to put verse, the half of verse 7 up on the screen here in just a minute. I'm not going to do what Chris tried to do. I'm definitely not going to try to pronounce the 13 names of, of Levites, okay, that are mentioned in the first half of verse 7. But verse 7 picks up with this statement, the Levites. In other words, the 13 names that are just mentioned were of the tribe of Levi. It says they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. What's going on here is Ezra is reading from the law. The, the, uh, many of the residents of the, of the nation of Israel have come back out of captivity. They're back in Jerusalem. The, the wall has been rebuilt partially, and Ezra is up, and he's simply reading. And he did it all day. And the people are, are standing, listening to the reading of God's Word, just like we just did. But as they're reading, there are these 13 Levites that are moving amongst the crowd. And they're also reading from the book, the book of the law, the first five books of Scripture. And they're reading, it says, clearly, in order that they gave the sense so that the people understood their reading. Here at New Life Church, the Word of God is supreme, and it points us to whom we worship. And we worship in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, but we worship our holy God. That's exactly what these people were doing, but they, they didn't understand. They'd been in captivity so long, they weren't sure what was going on. And so this verse is included here to show us the importance of helping God's people understand his truth, his word. Look, I have one job this morning. It's certainly not to entertain you. It's certainly not to tell stories, although I may share one or two. My main job is to do what Nehemiah says is to present the Word of God clearly in order to give the sense of God's Word so that the people will understand the meaning. I have a job. You have a job. I'm going to attempt to make the Word of God clear, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm trusting that 
he will make, help you to understand the truth of his word. That's why we're here this morning. That's what new life is committed to. And thus my introduction to Matthew chapter 20. Okay, let's look, let's look at the text now. But this is what we're doing as we work our way through this passage. Matthew chapter 20, this is what we're attempting to do. To understand the reading of God's word clearly. If you have your Bible open to chapter 20, just turn back a page to chapter 19. I want to do a very quick kind of contextual overview. For the last several weeks, we have been camped out in these two chapters, 19 and 20. Chapter 19 begins with this statement. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That means east of the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. We had four sermons on the chapter 19. Jesus has started a new phase of his ministry. He's done with his ministry in Galilee, and he is now headed towards Jerusalem. We know from where we sit that he's headed to the cross. Much happens on the way, however. We took four sermons to talk about that. In verses 13 and 14 of chapter 19, it says that children were brought to Jesus so that he might bless them and might pray over them. You remember what his disciples did? They rebuked them. They said, get out of here. We don't need you around here. The rabbi is teaching. And what does Jesus do? (laughs) The exact opposite. He blesses them. We saw in verses 16 through 22 of chapter 19 that a young man had come to Jesus seeking to know how to attain eternal life. We also understand that he's a man of great possessions, and he leaves disappointed because of what Jesus tells him to do. And then we moved into chapter 20, and this theme of what is God's kingdom, it's different from what we think it is. He turns our our expectations upside down. We see it again in chapter 20. We, We see examples of how the kingdom of Jesus doesn't fit our expectations of what it should be like, right? Including two of his own disciples. They send their mother to go and ask Jesus, can they sit on on your right and on your left? And of course, we had great messages about this. And Jesus consistently and persistently says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. And then he connects that last section with this section today. And the connector is verse 28. So look at verse 28 just for a second. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Today's passage, uh, beginning in verse 29, is in direct contrast to the misunderstanding that we saw that even Jesus' disciples had of what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to be a member of his kingdom. And what we're going to see today is this primary thought. There's a lot of ways to slice and dice this passage. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned from this passage. And you'll walk out of here with some takeaways that maybe I hadn't even thought of, and that's okay. But here's the main thing I want us to get, and I'll repeat this over and over again. Jesus' compassion is what leads to healing. The focus of this passage is not on the healing. The focus of this passage is not on the two blind men who are begging by the roadside. The focus of this passage is Jesus and his compassion. And it's Jesus' compassion which leads to healing. So let's look at the passage. 
And we're going to look at it from a couple perspectives. We're going to start by walking through part of the passage, looking at it from the perspective of the two blind men by the side of the road. Verses 29 and 30. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Let's just stop for a minute there. Where are they? Well, they're in Jericho. What do you remember about Jericho? Yeah, the walls come tumbling down, right? Jericho had been destroyed as the nation of Israel led under Joshua had come into the land. And that was the first city they encountered. And by God's grace and mercy and power, they simply walked around uh, the city until the walls came tumbling down. But today, at this point in time, when Jesus is here in Jericho, he's on the last lap of a journey to Jerusalem. The city of Jericho sat astride what was called the Wadi Kelt. It's a, it's a dry riverbed, except it's a very precipitously deep ravine, and Jer- Jericho is located near the very base of that, down towards the Jordan River. Herod the Great had built a new foundation for the city uh, about a, a mile to the south of the ruins of Old Testament Jericho. And so you have some people that are still living in and around the ruins of the Old Testament Jericho. There was still a residential area there. But Herod the Great had built this wonderful winter residence. In fact, Jericho at this time was known as the City of Palms. Now, I'm from Southern California, and we know what Palm Springs is, right? It's, it's, it's kind of this mecca where people go to to get out of the smog of the L.A. basin and get to this beautiful area. That's similar to what Jericho was like. It's only 15 to 18 miles, depending on, on turns in the road. It's about, let's just say about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It takes about six hours to travel from Jericho to Jerusalem. So think in terms of like from here to Barton, right? Or, or maybe to Aurora, or I actually looked up this morning to City Hall of Tigard. It's, it's the exact same distance from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's not that far, but here's the key. Jericho sits 800 feet below sea level, not far from the Jordan River, this great rift valley that connects the Sea of Galilee with the, with the Dead Sea. By the time you get from Jericho to Jerusalem, you, have, you are going uphill all the way. Those six hours are, are brutal because you're rising 3,300 feet. It's a rugged, rugged place. And this is where Jesus is, and he's passing through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And this great crowd has been following him. In fact, it's great, it's large, because many of them are pilgrims. They're on their way to Passover. This is a, a, a very important feast day, and one that would require their presence, their attendance there in Jerusalem. There may have also been a lot of blind people in and around Jericho. The climate was great. It was known for growing large quantities of balsam, which somehow at that time they believed was beneficial for eye defects. It was also a a great place to be with crowds coming by. The chance of receiving alms, receiving gifts from people were much greater. 
The crowd is festive. I want us to get a sense of what's happening here. It's loud. It's, it's boisterous. They're on pilgrimage. They're walking by sight in the light of day, yet they're not fully aware of the spiritual darkness all around them and even the darkness in their own hearts. In other words, they don't know yet what they don't know and what Jesus is about to reveal. And then Matthew says in this passage, and behold, (laughs) interesting little phrase, it's his unique way of calling attention to something, of making an emphasis about something. Debbie and I were talking about this earlier this week, and I said, to me, it's kind of like having played uh, team sports. It's kind of like in, in the huddle, coach comes during a timeout, and he says, listen up, guys. All eyes on me. Look at me. And she just kind of looked at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, to me, this sounds a little bit more like, listen carefully, because I don't want you to miss what, what's about to happen. So whichever, whichever way you like hearing that, this is what Matthew's doing. He's grabbing her attention. He's saying, I want you to pay attention I'm about to share something very significant with you. And then he says, there are two blind men, and they're by the side of the road. The gospel according to Luke, which covers the same story, mentions that there was only one person. There's not a conflict there. There's just simply one of the two is a little more boisterous than the other, vocal than the other. The gospel according to Mark actually names that single beggar. He calls him Bartimaeus. And we learn that these two that are mentioned here, they have, they have learned something about Jesus. They have heard something about Jesus. We don't know exactly how that happened. We understand, we, we can surmise that the, the reputation of Jesus has preceded him. We don't have any real record of Jesus doing ministry in Jericho, except possibly he may have passed through there after he was baptized by John in the very early days of his public ministry. But they've heard about him. And they're living in darkness, physical darkness, and they know that. Yet, they're about to share some profound insights. They're about to see very clearly uh, some spiritual things about Jesus that the boisterous, loud, moving crowd doesn't quite get. In fact, that's the irony here. The irony is that those who will see first Jesus on this journey are actually physically blind. Those who know they can't see him actually are the ones who are given first spiritual insight and then physical sight. It's a wonderful story. It says here that as Jesus was passing by, they cry out. Mark's account uh, makes it a little bit, sound a little bit different in that Bartimaeus hears that it's Jesus coming by, and so then he begins to cry out, and the crowd begins to respond directly back to him. This is a, this is a loud cry. I would mimic it, except I might scare you. But this is a very extremely loud cry. Think of it. Think of the noise of a large group of people passing by, and you have suddenly these, in this case, in Matthew's case, two beggars crying out loudly. It's a frenzied cry of anguish, of 
desperation. This is their last chance, their only chance. The only organ that works that gets attention is their voice, and so they're screaming with urgency. And that's the first observation I want us to make from the perspective of these two men. They, they are urgent in their request of Jesus. It's interesting. Those who realize they're needy, they're the ones who cry out to Jesus. It's the ones who don't realize that that stay silent. And that begs a question. I've had to think about this week. I urge you to think about this now. Can you remember a time when you did the same? Seriously. Now, if we were in the classroom right now and I was teaching, I would actually ask you to respond, but I won't hear. But I do want you to think about that. Can you remember a time? Maybe the loss of a loved one. Maybe the loss of a job. Maybe uh, the falling away of of a child or a grandchild from the faith. Something when you've just simply cried out like these two men did. Jesus, help me. God, help me. Can you think of it? I see some heads nodding. If you can't think of that, then really pay attention to the rest of this message. Because that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to cry out to him in our time of need. They were not only urgent, but they were also incredibly perceptive. They refer to him as Lord. They refer to him as Son of David. They recognize the identity of Jesus and the authority that comes with who he is. This term Lord is used in the gospel according to Matthew of only believers. It's only believers who call Jesus Lord in this gospel. And when used, the the reason is because Matthew intends for us to hear the voice of faith. They also call him Son of David, which is... uh, Another way of saying Messiah. They're recognizing, even though they're physically blind, that this Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the promised Messiah, the rightful ruler of God's coming kingdom. The crowd is not recognizing that, but they're recognizing that. It's interesting, those who use this title, Son of David, in Matthew's gospel to identify Jesus are people of no social standing, no theological importance. The blind, the lame, a Canaanite woman, these no accounts in their need are the ones who perceive that Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah. Surprisingly, in Mark's gospel, he only uses this title, Son of David, one time, and it's in this incident. In fact, outside of the the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament does not use this title. But Matthew, because he's attempting to focus our attention on Jesus as king, which is what our whole sermon series is about, Matthew uses it no fewer than seven times. Son of David. You remember what the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1? We're coming into that season of, we're close to Advent season, and then of course Christmas The angel says to Mary not to be afraid, and then he says, the Lord God will give you a son, and God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there there will be no end. 
Son of David is a statement of recognizing who Jesus is. He is the promised Messiah, and it comes from the lips of two men who can't even see him. And then notice what they do. They ask for mercy. They cry out for mercy. There's no merit in mercy. They're not calling out to God based on their own merit. They're different from the religious leaders who have been congregating around Jesus, the Pharisees in particular, who have been asking questions and trying to catch him in a trap. No, these, th- th- those Pharisees assumed they had their own merit based on their keeping of the law. But these two beggars recognize there is no merit in mercy, thus they plead for it from Jesus Messiah. Look at verse 31. Look at the crowd's response. The crowd was very excited about their, uh, their understanding, right? That's not what it says. It says the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. If I gave you the exact translation of the original term in the Greek language, hush! They're telling them to hush, or we might have other words for that today. Be quiet, be silent. Mind your own business. We're not interested in what you're saying. Hush. They rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And this shows that they were persistent. They were persistent in their cry for mercy. Two times it gets repeated. The crowd's not focused on what the blind people are saying. They're only focused on the disturbance that the two blind beggars are creating by their shrieking, Lord have mercy. I have a friend who lost his sight as a young adult, and I was asking him about this passage in particular, and he gave me several uh, perspectives, but this one really rings true. With vision loss, you are living in a physical environment that has many obstacles with little control. That's exactly what these guys were feeling. Have we felt that way before? I know I have. Where it's life is out of control and there are too many barriers, too many obstacles for me to overcome. What's the response? The beggar's response. Don't let the crowd dictate what you do. Don't let friends, don't let relatives, don't let others dictate how you respond. They refused to allow other people's priorities to deter them from reaching Jesus. And you know what? Desperate people, that's how they respond. They don't, they don't allow crowds to keep them from Jesus. And we've seen this already in other miracle stories in the Gospels. F.F. F. Bruce, a 20th century Bible scholar from Scotland who's written wonderful commentaries on Scripture, his one on the book of Acts is one of the best that's out there. He made this, this statement about this passage. They, the beggars, refuse to be bludgeoned into silence by the indifferent crowd. If I could speak with a Scottish brogue, it would have sounded much, much better, but you get the, you get the idea here. They were persistent. And notice their request is revealing a deep-seated faith, a deep-seated trust. Their cry is based on faith in who Jesus is, on his person, his power, his identity, his authority. In fact, by calling him son of David, 
are they not referencing multiple passages throughout the book of Isaiah where it's the prerogative of the Messiah to give sight to the blind? I'll call to your attention Isaiah 35.5. We can pop that up on the screen behind me. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. I won't put it on the screen, but let me read a portion of another one in Isaiah chapter 29. The prophet says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. He's quoting Yahweh. And he says, You turn things upside down. In that day the deaf shall hear, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. See, the very fact that they've identified Jesus as Son of David, as Messiah, they're revealing their faith, their trust, that he has the power, he has the authority, he has the wherewithal to grant their request. It's interesting. This is the final miracle that occurs in this journey to Jerusalem. He, he does perform some miracles in Jerusalem, but this, on the way, this is the final one that's recorded. And it's almost as if Matthew wants to summarize. He wants to show us the main features of all the other healing stories. He wants, to, he wants to remind us of them as Jesus goes to Jerusalem. The kinds of people that Jesus helped, who were they? They were the kind of people we sang about this morning. The poor, the needy, the no accounts. Also how those needy people approached Jesus. They would approach him urgently, and they would approach him in faith. Also, how others would respond to that. Usually, the crowd gets in the way, and they try to discourage that kind of response. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus responds directly, personally, oftentimes even with a touch, as we'll see. And then what results of these miracles stories is that healing occurs. And more often than not, we find that the person healed then follows in the footsteps of Jesus. So healing occurs discipleship begins. Again, we, we could go on and on and on, and we could glean all kinds of principles for prayer and so forth, and they're all there. But I don't want that to be our focus. I want our focus to be on Jesus. So let's look at the passage again. Let's pick it up here in verse 32 and look at the, the remainder of this passage from the perspective of Jesus. Verse 32 reads, And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Do you hear the tenderness in his voice? He's not yelling at them. He's tenderly asking, how can I help you? How can I serve you? I love the fact that the verse begins with, and stopping. And I want to stop right there for a second and reflect on that. Why did Jesus stop? Why do you think Jesus stopped? His, his stopping actually speaks volumes. In previous healings, he had instructed those who healed not to talk about it. But not now. He stops. Think of all the other interests. Think of all the other concerns. Think of all the other people that are surrounding him right now who are competing for his attention. But what Jesus does is he stops. <laughs> you get this, I get the sense, too, the crowd is probably still moving, and all of a sudden, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute, he stopped. Okay, then they, they finally stopped, too. It's significant that Jesus stops, I believe, because primarily what he's doing here is he is acknowledging publicly 
that what they just said about him is true. They just correctly identified him, and he stopped because they called him by the right title. Do you, do you see that? Do you get that? I think he's also stopping so that the reality of that, of his actions, the reality will sink in with his disciples and the rest of the crowd that's, that's gathered around him. He's prepared now to be recognized as Messiah. He'll be in Jerusalem within a day, and he's, he's ready to be recognized as this Messiah. I love it, too, because Jesus is on mission, right? Verse 28, he's on mission. He has a mission to get to Jerusalem, to be a ransom for the sins of many. But yet he stops. He stops because faith always gets to Jesus. When Jesus looks at his creation, when Jesus looks at his followers, when Jesus looks at those who are wondering about who is he, if, if faith is there, it gets to Jesus and he stops. His compassion for these two individuals override the expectations of the crowd. I love that. And then he seeks personal connection with them. Jesus stops. <clears throat> and then as he's stopped, he asks this compassionate question. He responds out of compassion because it's his nature and it's his ultimate motivation for the healing that's about to occur. Jesus' compassion always brings healing. Now, I want to make an Old Testament connection for you. I, I know that there are some in the American evangelical church now that would love us to unhitch our wagon from the Old Testament, so to speak, but I want to make an Old Testament connection. In fact, I'll make a couple. This one right now, I want to pose by asking another question. Who else do you know? Who else comes to mind in biblical history, Old Testament history, who had asked for mercy in this very geographical spot? It's not a trick question, but it's not an easy one to come up with the answer. I'll take you to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, you can look this up later, verses 11 through 14. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but in Joshua chapter 2, we, we hear a story about a prostitute who lived in the wall of the city of Jericho, and she makes an amazing proclamation of the reality of who God is. She says to two spies, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's like, Whoa, coming from the mouth of a pagan prostitute, that is an amazing affirmation of faith. And then she says, now please sw swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. In verse 14, the two spies say to her in a promise that when they come back, when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. You know what the word is for deal kindly? It's the word mercy. The exact same word. That these two blind beggars are crying out to son of David, show us mercy. Do you think the crowd remembered that? Probably not. Rahab was 26 generations in the rearview mirror. Do you think Jesus recognized that? Absolutely. A wonderful connection to God's mercy, God's compassion upon the downtrodden, the needy. In that, in that case, a prostitute. In this case, two blind beggars. Let's move on to verses 33 and 34. 
They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let our eyes be opened. The the language indicates that they had probably not been born blind, but had become blind. Their request literally is to regain or recover their sight. And notice, Jesus in pity. For those of you that know me, you know this is my favorite Greek term. It's my favorite Greek verb. And I'm going to fight the temptation to pronounce it. But it's wonderful. Ask me afterwards and I'll I'll let it roll off the tongue. But it, it... It gets translated throughout Scripture as moved with compassion. So in other words, Jesus is moved with compassion. In the New Testament, it's it's always and only used of Jesus. And it characterizes the divine nature of his actions. Not just human pity, but divine compassion for people in need. And then he does an amazing thing. And Matthew is the only one who emphasizes this. Mark's account, Luke's account, they don't emphasize this. He touches their eyes. In fact, Matthew tends to bring that to the forefront. Eight times in this gospel, he shows Jesus touching people as he's healing them. That's not necessary. Jesus heals people even from a distance. It's not necessary that he touch a person to bring healing. But wow, when he does so much more happens. The healing occurs, but so much more happens inside that person. And what I love to think of, in fact, just early this morning, I realized when they, when he moves his, his hand from their eyes and they open their eyes with regained sight, the proximity of him touching them, who do they see first? They're looking into the eyes of the son of David. It's an amazing, um, Amazing way that that the the text is showing God's deep, deep compassion for these men in need. And then notice, their healing results in their following. It says that they recovered their sight and they followed him. The term followed literally means to move in behind someone and move in the same direction to go the same way that a leader is taking you, to accompany them, to comply with them, essentially to obey them. That, that's what's happening with these. They didn't just meld in with, with the crowd. Rather, they go on and they actually follow him and discipleship begins. In fact, I've heard it said that if you look in your Bible, my Bible says, G, the, the, the little editorial comment at before verse 29 says, Jesus heals two blind men, right? Your Bible might say, two blind men receive sight. A better way of titling that would be, two blind men follow Jesus, because that's what's happening. Yes, they regain their sight, but they follow Jesus. This whole passage, it it wonderfully links the healing ministry of Jesus with his death that is about to come within a week. Moreover, it reminds us that the one that is going up to Jerusalem now to give his life as a ransom for many is in fact Messiah, the promised one, the son of David. And in his great power, used mercifully, compassionately, he's using it to save others. And in this case, to save and to bring the sight back to two blind beggars, not to save himself. So that begs the question, 
That begs a, 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 again, I've asked several, but this will be, I think, my final question. Namely, do we really believe that God is merciful? Do we really believe that Jesus is full of compassion for us? Do we? You know, it's interesting, in Exodus chapter 34, I'll make another link here to the Old Testament. Exodus 34, when God gives the the tablets of the commandments for a second time because Moses had destroyed the first ones. In chapter 34, um, God passes, Yahweh passes before Moses and then proclaims this. Listen to what Yahweh says about himself. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God, what? Merciful. Notice the, the first character trait that's mentioned. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is the mercy of God, it is the compassion of Jesus that brings healing in our lives. Matthew Henry, the 17th century uh, British pastor from Wales who also uh, wrote, has written a wonderful commentary on all of the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, said this about this passage. None follow Christ blindfolded. He first, by His grace, opens men's eyes and so draws their hearts after Him. They followed Christ as His disciples to learn of Him and as His witnesses, eyewitnesses, to bear their testimony to Him and to His power and goodness. The best evidence of spiritual illumination is a constant, inseparable adherence to Jesus Christ as our Lord and leader. Wow. I urge you today, as your brother in Christ, cry out to Jesus in that moment of need, in that moment of crisis. Cry out to Jesus, knowing who he is, and then believing and trusting in his power, his authority, his grace, his mercy to bring salvation. And then when he answers our prayer, accept that mercy. Accept his mercy. Open your eyes to his face. And then follow in his footsteps. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for six verses. What a story. But not just a story. A historical fact. And not just fact but something that leads us to a greater understanding of your person, your identity, your authority, your compassion, your mercy. Lord, may we be men and women who cry out to you readily in our times of need, knowing that you will respond. And then may we follow in your footsteps as a result of your great mercy. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to fall more in love with you. So thank you for this story this morning that helps us to get better insight into who you are so we might follow you better. We pray this in your precious name, the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.